Welcome to the New Models Podcast. On this episode, we speak to the New York-based writer Natasha Stagg, whose book Sleeveless Fashion Image Media New York 2011 to 2019 was published this fall by Semiotext, MIT Press. We recorded this conversation earlier this year when Natasha was passing through Berlin in advance of her book's release. Because of the recording date, we do talk about Old Town Road a bit. I'm sorry. This is Lil Internet joined by New Models founder Carly Busta and artist Daniel Keller. Let's get right into it. Welcome to New Models. Welcome to the New Models podcast. Our guest today is, uh, we have someone from our old, uh, the graveyard of our past. Wait, that sounds bad. <laughs> no, I mean the good. physical graveyard of our past. <laughs> new, new Brooklyn, New York. Uh, yeah. How did you interpret that? Grave, physical graveyard? I just didn't see how that physical graveyard is better than like a spirit, <laughs> spiritual graveyard. Well, because a, a graveyard of Emotional. our past means it, uh, that sounds like you have to leave, like all of it is dead and should be left We're behind. all in the afterlife in Berlin right now. That's true, though. We're here with Natasha Stagg. Berlin is heaven. Yeah, good point. <laughs> We're here with Natasha Stagg. <laughs> Thanks for bringing me into the afterlife. <laughs> um, yeah, when are you gonna when are you gonna move here like everyone else from New York? Um, <laughs> I've thought about it a bunch of times, but I need to learn German first. I feel guilty. <laughs> I feel so guilty. Do you hear that, guys? Uh, <laughs> I'm actually finally in my thirteenth year. I'm gonna. I'm gonna sign up for a German course. Yeah, oh, yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I I took a placement test. I'm not. I'm behind, sort of, but probably not. <laughs> anyway, Natasha's here. Natasha's an author. If you're listening to this cast, you're probably already familiar with her writing. Her first book, Surveys, a novel, was published by Semiotex in 2016. Her second novel is out this year, also from Semiotext, and it's titled Sleeveless, Fashion, Image, Media, New York, 2011-2019. Natasha was previously the senior editor of V Magazine and V Man, and her writing on fashion and the stark truths of cultural production in the 21st century has appeared in Art Forum, Book Forum, Texted or Kunst, N Plus One, Spike Art, Flash Art, Dazed, Vice, O32C, and other publications. Wait, Sleeveless is, is a novel? No, it's not a novel because most of it is nonfiction, but some of it is fiction. That's what I thought. Because so it, I never know what to call it. Fictionalized. Yeah. That term? Yeah. But what isn't fictionalized that. anymore? Did Epstein die? Was he murdered? I mean, like, well, I who's think Epstein? it's. <laughs> <laughs> but That's I mean, my new bit. I feel, I just felt like the mm. mode was whatever it is novel, collection of essays, nonfiction. I mean, all those distinctions, it just felt like a contemporary novel. It was like a That's form. That's cool. I like that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like some valence of autofiction where some things have probably been changed, but obviously they come from personal experience. Uh, but I mean, I've already gotten kind of called out for like using people's anecdotes in my stories <laughs> and they're like, but it didn't happen that way. I'm like, yeah, it's not actually yeah. <laughs> anything to do with you. I just 
you know, took inspiration from it. But it, I guess it's like half and half, like essays and stories. And some of these essays were published previously mm-hmm. in Spike magazine. I guess now it's the third year I'm doing it for Spike, where I just have a column where I write whatever is going on in my life once a week. It's pretty cool. <laughs> it's yeah. like one of the coolest assignments I've ever gotten, you know, because most of the time assignments are like very specific and this yeah. is the least specific you could possibly get. So, yeah, it's great. How did your, um, so when you, so you finished surveys, came out in 2016, and then when did you first start thinking about putting together essays for a new book? I mean, I didn't have the book in mind when I was writing any of this, really. Mm-hmm. It was kind of just, this is like a collection of everything I've written since moving to New York. So I'm, my editor is Chris Krause, and so when I talked to her about it, I was like, I kind of want to try to put together a collection. And I sent her basically, like, everything from a certain time period. And she was like, I think you have enough. You actually have too much. And we should cut it down and make it really focused and then call it whatever the title is going to be and then colon 2011 to 2019 because it's very much sort of a snapshot of my life in New York and kind of like what I've learned since moving there. Now, after editing it and putting it in this context of a book, it seems more novelistic maybe. Like it is like my life from starting out and like learning all these things about New York and the worlds of whatever media and fashion and right. I mean, it is like a diary though. It reads like a diary, kind of. But all so of you were I mean, writing this in real time though, as it went along, without yeah. any, without necessarily expecting to publish it even or. No, definitely not. I mean, well, every most of them have been published, so a lot uh, of them okay. are articles that were assignments and. I've edited everything, but not a whole lot. A lot of them were from when I was writing for Disc Magazine, you know, and then for V Magazine when I was there, and then Spike, and a lot of really random, like, tiny publications, and whoever would have me. (laughs) So, and then there's a couple that are new. But, I mean, a character comes through as you're reading, you start to develop a relationship to the protagonist or your voice, and it's one that is pretty relatable to anybody who's worked in the culture sector over the past 10, 15 years. (laughs) I felt it very cathartic to read. (laughs) It's an interesting position where you're given access to everything, but yet you're still enslaved to a system. Do you mean like working in magazines specifically or the fashion world? Fashion world, but I would say it would probably extend to the culture sector in general. Like, you know, there's a passage where you're speaking about getting into a big EDM show or something and how you're put on the guest list as opposed to the press, like getting a press pass. You have a guest pass. Uh-huh. And there's a lot of attention to these kinds of nuances and sort of what the price is for each. No, but it, it's like, I mean, you guys all have like, you're part of the culture sector, but like the different prongs of it, I guess, the art, music, and editorial yeah. sides of this like weird, like, I guess I'm the fashion prong then, like over here. Like it's <laughs> the, the weird feeling that I could never get around when I was working, and I'm still doing, I'm still working for fashion companies and stuff. Like the feeling of being welcomed into a zone and then being told that nothing you do is really like actually a part of it or like that you're contributing to it, but you're kind of working for it instead of like becoming accepted by it. And there's this strange dissonance that happens where 
I think for a lot of people, it kind of destroys them. Like it makes them reject all of it and say like, well, I'm better than all this. I'm like now going to become in control of it in some way, become the editor of my own thing or become like a photographer of a bigger deal thing, whatever it is, or an artist. And then I think other people like maybe all of us or like at least me, like see this strangeness as more interesting than the art that it's describing even. You know what I mean? Like I just find it so fascinating to actually look at the cogs instead of looking at the fact, I mean, who cares about fashion? Like, I don't care about fashion, and everybody I know that I work with does not care about fashion at all, but we care about the fashion system because it's so fascinating. Right. The metadata is more interesting. Yeah. 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 Sure. I always frame this as like, you know, everyone in the creative business makes Kool-Aid. New York, I think, generally has always had a bit of meta self-awareness of the mechanics of the industry and how meaningless and weird it is anyways. But other, I think especially in LA, they like really believe in it. And I think maybe because in LA also the, uh, like your wealth is more conspicuous because of cars. Hmm. Like you can be cool and poor in New York, but that's impossible in LA. No, totally. But you're right. And, and I think it's like, when you're in LA, you kind of have the whole like valet experience of like <laughs> getting into yeah. a thing with like a tree lined driveway. Whereas like New York, you show up and you're like, you can literally see what's behind the curtain always. Like you, you go to a party and you're like, I've made it to this party, but I can see like all the people working at the party and they're probably like cooler than the people at the party. <laughs> or like there's, there's yeah. always some like weirdness happening that's more interesting than the actual event, you know? I mean, this is why authenticity seems to be like a strong theme in the book. And the idea of authenticity in L.A. and New York is also different. I mean, authenticity, yeah, like how do we even define it now? I mean, you can be authentically plastic, right? Mm -hmm. You can be like authentically rich. You can be like authentically douchey. You can be like authentically all these different things, right? I mean, authentic doesn't just mean this idea of, yeah, man, he really skates and he has, I don't know, whatever, like 90s. (laughs) I'm trying to make it without what I mean. But like, I think also like the change terms of authenticity and what that means in a time where like more and more stuff is actually in like screen space and not physical. I guess in New York things will always remain physical because even to like make it to the bodega you have to like fight for your life. Yeah. It's <laughs> like a physical. <laughs> well and I mean the New York has always been a real life internet since like the 80s right? <laughs> I mean since the 19th century it's like built right. on pedestrian or, yeah. scale. Like I always thought about hip hop came out of the projects in the Bronx but I just thought of them as like those stats of buildings. I remember like flying over New York. It looks like a computer. A circuit board. Chips. Yeah, like, yeah, a circuit yeah board. totally. And I was just thinking like th- that was like a, p- a human processor because everyone's so close together that as soon as someone figures out you can like loop disco records and rhyme and rhythm over it. Like the meme <laughs> just spreads through this human processor building really fast and then it creates something like that would otherwise you wouldn't have the network and proximity of human processing power to do. Or it's like Kim's video back in like the day of there was no internet and obscure media was hard to track down. Like it was like a node for like very rare media and film. And then because of the proximate and human based network, you had a lot of incredible things were created, right? So it always was a physical human internet and it remains that way too. I think the physical aspect of New York, especially in the 
fashion and like downtown scene or whatever. Well, this reminds me when you're talking about scabies and bed bugs in your book, this whole oh, yeah. passage <laughs> of physical proximity and spreading viruses and like being hosts, being hosts to different ideas or hosts to different viruses. Or yeah. No, yeah, it's... I mean, that was like, uh, I actually got scabies before I moved to New York, but I got bed bugs <laughs> once I got to New York and I, it was like a huge, um, wake up call. Like, okay, you're in New York, but you have to keep all of your things in plastic bags and don't touch anything. You know, it's like, you have to <laughs> live this like completely chaotic lifestyle. It's like you can, your whole house can become a hazmat zone overnight as soon as one roommate decides that maybe somebody has bed bugs. Just the yeah. idea of it. I mean, it's like yeah. completely... I mean, people are living in fear of... I haven't heard about bed bugs in a while, actually. Maybe right. it's kind of gone. But people are living in fear of a lot in New York. I mean, one thing you said, it was like searching for freedom, but I think I mean, more also just like, especially in the fashion world and stuff where there's so many people who really don't have to ever worry about money. And when you're one of the people who actually still feel this baseline lack of safety in New York. It's such a different perspective yeah. when you're in that world, I think. And some, I mean, of course, in that, it's New York's becoming even more precarious for, I think, the creative class. Yeah. Well, yeah, it depends on what you mean by the creative class. Because I think there's, like, a changing definition of it, too, you know. How would you say it's different between, like, when you first got there and now? Um... Well, I mean, from my own experience, I just thought of the creative class as some as people who really had this level and sincerity or like this sort of, I don't know, this like diehard loyalty to art. And now I think it's almost a derogatory term. It's the sellouts. It's the people who have, like me, like, <laughs> you know, gotten these jobs where you apply your creativity to more easily define or more like easily sort of show this progress in like big brands instead of trying to make something of it that actually resonates with your niche audience it's this other thing where like we still feel exploited but in a completely different way right like we're all working for brands and branding and design yeah. and copywriting and my like day job is definitely like it's all press releases like That's social media captions and I yeah I've gotten some really cool jobs that I totally appreciate but I also have to like imagine that they're contributing to the world in a really dark way (laughs) (laughs) it's kind of funny how like you you can put those on a spectrum of like dark yeah like sincere to cynical but you could also kind of they they could fall all over the map in ways that you don't expect because I think also we're now living in a time where like you don't actually have that much I don't think artists really kind of like strike a chord anymore as you know this like hero of some sort you know (laughs) you just you can't like say like well I'm writing a press release for an artist and therefore it's way more admirable or valid valid than than writing for a giant brand You know, yeah, like if you're thinking about it in terms of environmental impact, for example, the art world has absolutely no responsibility in mind when it comes to that. Like what they create is made out of materials that could be used for other things. And 
fashion brands are all kind of at least greenwashing yeah. their brands with, where they're Isn't like that worse. Do you think that's no, it, yeah. it might be worse in some ways and I mean, better. The impact is textile industry is. I think it's as bad as transportation. It's also much larger. I mean, it's larger much and larger. larger. Right, that's the thing. Like, yeah. you can measure these things in different ways and, and somehow get different results, I think. For I sure. don't know. But, I mean, complicity is exciting, I guess, or can be. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, for me, it, it stopped being so. But I feel like it kind of, I don't know how to get that back. <laughs> the excitement wanna, of complicity. Excited? Yeah, like mapping out the system or like the metadata, that was more interesting than the content. Also, with the art world for a long time, it was just like, I'd go to the show, I would read the texts and the see what the collection was and see all of the social metadata. And yeah, eventually that was just like, everything else kind of fell away. But in the 2000s, we shared a public, the art shared a public sphere. So when globalizing was happening, we were all sharing an arena. We cared about the biennales, we like paid attention to Documenta, but... Somewhere around 2012, 13, 14, that started to fracture. And the fashion signal was much stronger than the art signal. It I mean, just maybe, had the leverage. Yeah, maybe it sounds naive, but I just feel like there was like a pretense of there being a meritocracy in our world, which of course never really was there. But right. very much zombie, whatever, formalism. Post Unmonumental, that, that new museum yeah, show. Yeah, that sort of like it's became like clear that, that, yeah, there was no cream rising to the top effect anymore. It was much more arbitrary. I don't right. Know. Yeah. So yeah. Art, so, yeah. But is there anything? Yeah. Is there anything specifically exciting in fashion? Not really. I mean, I think fashion is always fun to look at. Like I personally like looking at fashion. But no, there's no new ideas. Mm-hmm. Like the only new ideas is, are sort of a, an idea of backtracking in a way to make things more democratic or more environmentally friendly. But not actually those things at all. The idea of showing that you're working on it, basically. Um, no, I think the fashion world is like completely behind in its understanding of new communication, and it's not really involved in any kind of advanced technology, so no. But I, I've always loved writing about fashion for some reason. I think it's like the most interesting form of art for me because I can like see it on a person and I can see trends happening within my circles and within the larger picture and it just seems more impactful in general. I mean, the art world is very impenetrable in many ways. The literary world is super like tight-knit. I don't have that much contact with it, to be honest. It feels um, the most behind. Um, the music world, I just have... I just have fun there, I guess. I don't, but I have no like communication. I mean, I don't, I don't never write music reviews or anything like that, but yeah. But for me, I felt like fashion pretty quickly reflected the like meme space that you were seeing online by 2016. Well, yeah, 2016, 17, you were seeing this different sense of luxury reflected in the fashion space. Yeah, Art, there was no consensus there yet. I mean, you couldn't see it. It wasn't like you could look at a biennial and you could just see that the like cultural mood had shifted really. Like fashion can in a more honestly reflect a cultural change, whereas mm-hmm. art feels like it needs to approve the way that things are represented it's like it has more freedom to well, say yeah no. I think you like you can always look to fashion in any time period we kind of look at different eras in terms of fashion more than we do True. in any other way like you see like the kind of icon of like 
the 1920s as like one style of dress. Totally. Which is obviously not how it was back then. If you like time traveled, you would see a million different kinds of dresses. But you know that like this one kind of represented the mood of the time. So we're going to like stick to it. And it does have reverberating effect of is it symbol or is it historical artifact? Or yeah, fashion does that now. We have to think about it in so many different ways where we're like, what is this going to be? Do we want this to represent our time or do we want it to be a very esoteric statement of a thing that can't be possibly understood in another era? I don't know. The meme thing, I think, only would work in fashion. I think when art tries to get to that space, it's not interactive enough. Right. Like fashion has to be interactive for it to exist because people have to buy it and wear it. Right. So the whole idea of a meme like being shown to you and not being able to repost it or like give back to it in some way. And I've always I think I've always had a really good feeling about that type of elitism that it creates. I know that's not like the common feeling about it, you know, in the same way that you watch a really good movie and you're like, not everyone's going to understand this and I can. And I love that about it. Like I've felt that way about fashion my whole life where I'm like. It's fun to get it. It's fun to like see somebody wearing something that you're not sure if the rest of the world will understand like the references of it. I mean, you create a secret club in plain sight and you like create a small society within a mass. Yeah. Um, one thing you mentioned was that the term influencer changed from when you started writing about it to what it means now. How exactly did it change? Um, so I didn't ever hear that term. I, mean, I don't think it existed as what it means. I mean, the word influencer obviously existed, but we now know it to mean a very specific type of person. And yeah, I definitely, because when I wrote surveys, which was basically about an influencer, I didn't have that word in mind or okay. I didn't have it at hand at all. And I also wrote surveys like much earlier than when it was actually published. So it might feel even older than it actually is, but it never used any of the the terminology of influencers the way we would talk about them now. And I guess a lot of the essays in Sleeveless, I was writing in that same time period. So now when I get asked to write articles for different magazines, they'll want me to focus on that culture. And it still feels foreign to me in a way because I'm like, I wrote about it without knowing that it was a thing yet. And then it happened and it was almost like, I don't I feel really weird about that because I don't know if I got it completely right. You know, it's like well, it was kind of an predicting emergent, the emergent thing. Yeah, yeah so exactly. Did you have a term for it? Did you use? No, I mean, I had I have absolutely no point of reference for the character that I drew. Like okay. I was like, what if a person got this famous <laughs> for doing mostly nothing and kind of just being really fun to watch online? Like that's never really happened before because the people that I had in mind were sort of bloggers or like not even vloggers because I don't think that was really a thing yet, at least in my like limited view, but musicians and DJs and like people that had an actual content output. And I was like, what if I cut that out? And my idea for that was mostly just because I didn't want to isolate anybody. I was like, I could write about a famous musician, but then I'd have to say what kind of music it was, (laughs) you know? And then like a lot of people would be like, I hate that music. I don't want to read about (laughs) this rock and roll person or whatever it is. So I was like, I'll just 
cut that out and make magical realism or something. Right. <laughs> like Which is just what is the job. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess it is very magical realism. Willing things and Into brands being. and symbols. and yeah. yeah. It's a surreal life. I mean, I've I've met a couple now and I feel like it's, it's a strange feeling to know that an influencer has read my book and then they meet me and say, like, I, that book spoke to me. And I'm like, <laughs> I didn't know you were going to happen. Like, right. I didn't know yeah. this was going to be a thing ever. The influencer's right. influencer. <laughs> yeah. but, I mean, I guess you say that also in the book that sort of like once there is a term for these things, it becomes a pattern that people kind of adopt more readily. Right. Um, so, I mean, it's like also like an Orwellian thing. Like, yeah. Unless you have the word, you can't imagine it. If you don't have a word for freedom. You don't have a word for influencer. You can't influence. I mean, but right. I think I think we should remember though. I mean, you sort of point to this in both your books that like influencers were already taking hold before before Instagram existed. I mean, you did have the Tinsley Mortimer's and the Chloe Seventies, like you know, buy magazines. I was obsessed that were, with. Like, I knew about these people, and I was obsessed with same. how small their impact was and how much more impactful that is because of its smallness. Precisely. And that's that's what a micro-influencer is now. There's now a term for that. Precisely. I mean, all those people are um, now, they've now graduated to mega-influencer. <laughs> but is there a mega? There's micro, macro, and mega. Is there not nano? I thought I've, I think I've definitely, <laughs> I've definitely heard whatever you want. Some brands are like, you have, if you have like a thousand followers, I think you're like a nano. Yeah, what are the, what are the counts can, for each of these categories? You get some, like, I'm sure you get some free socks and stuff. I think I don't know. that they must change over time, but the last report I read was like a micro-influencer, I think is under 10,000. Uh-huh. And macro is over. Something like that, and the, uh-huh. you know, in the in the tens of thousands range, and then a right. mega is one million. So there's not that many mega influence. I mean, there probably there's are way more than you think. Yeah, sure. yeah. How many right. organic there's megas? Like I mean, there's pop stars who are mega influencers because of their yeah, craft. But right. there's, there's also that yeah, there's this delineation which goes into the conversation of authenticity, where like now I think that everything is so far away from our original definition of like authenticity. You tend to go into that zone of thinking like, well, Selena Gomez is pretty authentic <laughs> because she didn't have influencing in mind when her when she grew her follower base. And yeah. it's like, that's a crazy <laughs> way to think about that person, you know, because she's like made music. She's so authentic yeah. as an influencer. She's a talent. Yeah. Right. I mean, wasn't, isn't it, was it Jaja Gabor? Isn't she the first influencer that was? I mean, a like Marlena Dietrich. I mean, any every social she was like, wasn't she? Yeah. Okay, social. As I mean, of the media age, anyways. That Jesus like, was the first influencer. <laughs> Abraham the was the first influencer. <laughs> right. Can we talk about Gabbana's Law? Sure. Because it was mentioned in in your book about like ads that are racist, but you wonder if they intentionally did it oh, yeah. just to get yeah. the extra amplification. We yeah. talked about this and we called it Gabbana's Law after Dolce and Gabbana. At which point uh, at which point does the like the racism benefit your brand as opposed to hurt it just by sheer amplification alone? I like so, the idea that there's like sti- like statistics people that are employed yeah, specifically a, <laughs> for that that's our equation. speculative Gabbana's law is, is if there is actually a researched equation about this. Do you think it is intentional? And they, they on that scale, all of what we think of as woke politics actually just become pieces of a puzzle to drive amplification, extract value, et cetera. I mean, I think, well, I remember when you guys were talking about that on um, that episode, but it, the Dolce & Gabbana scandal, I actually took 
as one of the most obviously not intentional ones huh. because they seem as people very outspoken in like ridiculous <laughs> like they just yeah. comment on celebrities Instagrams and they do all these things that you know aren't really ill-advised and probably won't get them good press ever but you're right because I think I wasn't really hearing about them for a long time you know like when I was right. listening to you guys talk about it, I was like you know what maybe maybe they started commenting on somebody's account because somebody told them that that would be a good way to get back in the news and then maybe their comments ended up being as dumb as they were through no fault of statisticians like you know like <laughs> advice or like who knows I do actually think I don't know how much I kind of address this in my book but I do think there is a gross like miscalculation in terms of general public's idea of how much research goes into like <laughs> the influencers or anything I feel like there's probably a anything lot anything at yeah, all right. yeah it's like I've been in meetings where I'm talking like I'm some expert like I've been in all these boardroom <laughs> meetings you know it's just but I've been like very struck by conversations and meetings that are just so completely coming out of someone's ass it, it's like so obvious at the time you know these yeah. people that get hired because it's just a job and they're like sure I'll do that that's my job I'm trying to like work in this sphere and so now my job is to like tell other people within the sphere how to do their job but I have no experience at all because no one does because it's a completely new medium. And, you know, I've seen like PowerPoint presentations that are completely like wrong in every single way, <laughs> just like absolutely backwards. And they're being shown to some Gen X person that needs that to just feel okay about the next step. You know, that's basically what it is. But yeah, I think I think some brands must have a goal of creating scandal. But talk about this Heineken ad, I yeah. think, in the Yeah, in I the don't book. know. I've you know, <laughs> like I actually got that from it wasn't like I came up with the idea that it was racist. It was like that tweet from right. Chan Chancellor Rapper. It was like you have to wonder, but right. I mean, there was this other, it's like everything is Gamergate is the thing that right. I read. And so I guess there is a sort of a playbook for inflaming people mm -hmm. things in, a, in a strategic way. And like, yeah, everyone is obviously just doing that. Like, Right. Everybody seems to be operating in such a mode of chaos that it's hard to imagine that anything is like easily predictable at this point. It's like they already said that weather prediction has become less and less accurate because there have been more odd events. So the normal models they have are less and less useful. And so you just think you're in a boardroom and even let's say the research they think is correct. I mean, is it really? How do you know people are going to respond? Post-weirdening, aren't we in a stage of chaos right now where it's quite hard to imagine? I guess it depends if like big data is real or not, but there's right. more data. Data, there's more to glean as far as like psychometric stuff. I mean, more I, data is only helpful if you have the right grid to put on top of it. To well, I don't know. Think about like um, Palantir. I feel like I don't know. There's definitely people. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know yeah, that yeah, are yeah. definitely thinking very specifically at the right level of tensions to inflame. I still believe things. in chaos. <laughs> I mean, of course there's <laughs> chaos, but it's about you know yeah. trying to manage it very slightly. Or you know. I mean, I think the studio that I work for is. I'm just kind of privy to like a lot of conversations and it's not mostly fashion. It's like every type of company, like tech, art, whatever. So I've seen at the first level what a scandal looks like in some ways, you know, <laughs> like there's like been certain brands 
that are dealing with one of these types of missteps. And then I like, you know, I see it. They really didn't mean to do that. Like for sure. They're all know. teams employed for crisis management, right? A lot of these brands. I was I listening know. to an, I don't know. <laughs> an A16 podcast, which was speaking to top crisis management within a corporate system. Like your CEO made a misstep and it's public. How do you handle it? You have a contingency policy. Mm-hmm. When this happens, here's the chain of command. Here's the rollout of what we say. Yeah. And then you need to have people staffed full time right. to be able to handle, to absorb that when it happens. I don't think that... Uh, setup has caught up with the current climate of cancellation culture anyway. Yeah. Like it's, I think that that's always been probably something in place in terms of like HR, but I don't know if we have crisis management teams for like accidentally viral video or well, feature. Well, they do in some Silicon Valley companies. They are of like, course. they're I mean, like, they they're very yeah. aware. Well, it's like, it, I think it changes the entire concept of a brand so like if a brand like Dolce & Gabbana you know says this something racist about Asia it it affects their biggest market so like Asia right now is the biggest market for any luxury fashion brand and it's like that was really stupid like you cannot recover from that unless you apologize and Dolce & Gabbana as a brand is supposed to be sort of built on this idea of unapologetic Italian loyalty, like craftsmanship, you know, like all these like buzzwords of like, we're strong and we like, we'll always say the way we feel and that's it. That's like what you're buying when you buy this product. But now every single fashion brand has had some sort of fallout where they have to apologize to like a ethnicity that they don't understand because they've never had to have that interaction with them so far. Like they've only had to make the product and then sell it to the place. And now it's kind of like, we put this thing on a global platform and you're allowed to communicate with it and you're allowed to even like give us feedback about it in real time, the brand just completely falls apart. Like the idea of what a brand is just disintegrates. Yeah, the green curtain dissolves. Right. You see the mechanism behind it. Right. I mean, specifically with China, it's interesting because like most movies, for instance, these days they voluntarily just comply with Chinese censorship laws mm-hmm. because, of course, that's the biggest market. Like, for instance, the uh, the Top Gun remake, like uh, he had a right. patch with Taiwan and Japan logo <laughs> really? on it, and they took it off for really? the remake because China was one of the biggest funders for that. And so, like, we're actually probably not going to ever see any sort of like critical depictions of China anymore coming out of Hollywood. Whereas, of course, we'll still see some of America because the censorship laws are not quite as strict. Well, well didn't yeah Taylor Swift had like this TS 1989 because you know her initials oh, plus right. her oh, album. Right, but it happened to be Taylor Swift. Exactly 1989, and so and wow. she somebody from our community sent us like all this intel. They had been researching heavily, and they noticed that she first entered the Chinese market in like 2015, and that like a lot of her brand's energy has been going into priming her for the Chinese market which had this big problem of TS 1989. Wow. So she scrubbed all of her merchandise for them and she scubbed all of like, you know, I don't know, whatever. She changed she, the year. She, yeah, she changed it. It's like, <laughs> what? Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a pop star is, an, is another type of brand that has to, you know, like it's, the format is completely changed. And yeah. therefore what makes a good pop star is completely changed. Like Madonna could not be who she was then now. Right. And who she was then was the basis of pop stardom. Like that's what you were supposed to be is unapologetic. And now you're supposed to be extremely apologetic. And 
it just, I think that must change like the fabric of our existence in so many totally. ways. Yeah, imagine if Madonna had an apology tour. A reconciliation tour. Yeah, that would be good. A yeah. penance Peace tour. Peace and reconciliation. Well, that would make sense. There we go. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I mean, where is the space of transgression now? I mean, Don't say, no one say memes. <laughs> I wasn't thinking faster writing. I mean, but it does make sense that in a time where there has to be this total compliance, that you're going to have incredibly extreme release valves. I mean, Everybody can only say what they really feel if they're anonymous. Totally. Or, or it comes out in really violent spurts. Or right. in, in or, small, you know. In yeah, but also, I mean, I thought it was interesting in your book when you're having these Me Too conversations and conflicted internal thoughts over it and really exploring the nuance of it. I don't know if any of those particular parts of the book were previously printed or not, but... Yeah, although I think the story you're thinking of is from N plus one. But I was, I mean, but I am thinking that it's like, you can hide what you really think in like really long form writing. (laughs) But like when it comes to your social media or anything bite-sized, like you have to... Like, it's kind of like that public space demands you to pick a side, you know? I don't know. I really, it sounds really simplistic, but I feel like there are, there are sort of parallel landscapes of thoughts, of, of thought based on how long of the content you generally read is. <laughs> yeah. I wonder about that too. I mean, it, yeah, I think that's like sort of a general fear of like our generation that like anybody younger than us doesn't take in nuance as much but I don't know I mean that's a kind of unnuanced view I guess you know (laughs) but also I mean just think about like there's actually nuances that we don't read that are being deployed all the time I think the codes are just shifting well it kind of is related because I think there's definitely a focus on linguistics from our college years that was like trying to figure out like okay language is changing a lot right now it's probably going to affect the way people think about things and the way people communicate obviously will change, but maybe it's also affecting like entire generations and their thought processes. Mm -hmm. And maybe we're sped up and maybe we need to account for that in some way. And so I think it was almost thrown out in the same way that, the, the idea that violent video games affecting an entire generation was thrown out. Like, people don't want to think that that really changed the world so much. And because there were studies, you know, because there were linguistic studies saying, like, if you grow up learning a certain language as opposed to another one, it doesn't actually affect the way you think in such dramatic ways. Like, you think in another language and that's it. You know, you're not a more violent person. You're not a more enthusiastic person. Like, th- that was thrown out way long ago in early linguistic studies. And then I think there's a tendency for us to now try to throw out any related idea of inner thought being affected by outer culture. But I think that's maybe the nuance you're trying to say is like, it is and it's not, you know? Like we have to imagine that it it must affect us in some way. Well, I also think you just, I mean, the platforms demand you to deliver a tidy Truth, And they also, I mean, the social aspect of it demands you to pick a side, too. So it's like complex, nuanced positions can, yeah, they can only kind of come out in long form. And I also noticed, though, that fiction is really the most, it's a safe way to express these kinds of nuances, too. Like, there was that New Yorker piece about Night Landsman, right? Oh, the Mary It was a work of fiction, right? Right. I mean, your book is a work of fiction. It's not really, but it is a work of fiction. And there's a certain amount of protection offered 
by that to explore things in a complicated kind of nuanced form. And then I'm thinking as nonfiction and news keeps being uh, basically approaching the realm of fiction. I mean, mm-hmm. television news for a long time has used the devices of filmmaking, dramatic music, whatever, for right. such a, a very long time now that, I mean, maybe fiction actually in the future will be more significant as a really the most effective way to explore topics. The human experience. In, yeah, the yeah. human experience without having to deliver everything in these tidy, binary yeah. truths, you know? Yeah. Well, there's definitely like a surge of popularity in dystopian science fiction, like yeah. television shows and right. movies. And I think that is obviously like due to the changing political climate and yeah fiction is like the most lasting historically to show yeah, like satire sure. and we still look at the canterbury tales <laughs> i mean i've been obsessed with like early kurt vonnegut stuff recently where he was writing about like automation and artificial intelligence and like a technocrat like oligarchy and it was just like i was like this shit is like in like the 1950s pu- in the 50s. Yeah. And it's like if it was published today like it would, it was just basically like Black Mirror scripts, like written by Vonnegut well, in the fifties. It's, it's really, like, really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think that that Mary Gates Girl story was like one of the most effective oh, yeah. kind yeah, of responses too. to the Me Too movement that I've ever read. And I, I also just think that the Me Too. I think Caitlin Phillips calls it like the Me Too genre of literature or something <laughs> like it's her favorite genre because like it's it is like really good content it's a really interesting and rich conflict to create a story from probably yeah, yeah. she's including like pause de Luerta's Instagram <laughs> captions that are like a novel in itself but um, yeah, mean, but the fiction, I yeah. think, is like, oh, so good. But in a way, <laughs> when we think of the films of the 90s or the dramas of the 90s or Mary Gates Girls fiction, for instance. In I the mean, 90s, yeah. In the 90s, specifically, <laughs> right? I mean, you couldn't put out Secretary now. Like, true. You couldn't, but it was amazing when it came. I loved it when it came out. Of course, yeah. And it felt timely or like, you know, that's still in the public imaginary, but there's not a space for it. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, and everybody's rereading. All those, like, David Foster Wallace predictions and yeah. it starts to make more sense the more it's kind of closer to dystopian yeah. times. I mean, this should just be contemporary dystopian fiction, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, very, very, very near future <laughs> dystopian. Like, next year. Like, exactly. <laughs> right. I think that could be really, like, a, a really effective medium. Fashion, yeah. Like, spring, summer, 2020, uh, like, science, future science fiction. And you fiction. use the same characters. <laughs> like, you actually use real people, but no relation living right, or dead but right, the same right. name same situation <laughs> I think that's a good job. I mean that's kind of autofiction I guess yeah it's just sort of teasing out the parts that made you feel crazy while they were happening you know yeah. <laughs> like, I think that's maybe the closest to like what I would call my writing or like what I want to go for and you know starting now because I think it's impossible to write anything that's more shocking than what's going on around yeah, All it's true. Those. I mean, it's why Netflix feels so redundant. It's like, yeah. you're like, oh, I'm watching this hastily made new series that's really tropey when I could just be reading the Epstein like intrigues and Ooh, it's like far what? more. Right, what? What's that story? It's, it's far more <laughs> true in a way. I mean, the reason why we're also so obsessed with conspiracy is that this kind of hive mind fiction of the present or truth of the present gets at like our psyche so much better than these hastily 
written Netflix series. Yeah. That, you know, are well, Netflix. Yeah. Netflix is really bad. It's like Netflix is going to have a big crash and burn moment. I think in the next couple of years when they put too much money in new content too. And you're just that's like deliberate. Yeah. Because that you, gets but, new subscribers and then they cancel shows yeah, after two seasons, even if they're popular, just because they, they know that it doesn't actually bring in new subscribers. And that's the goal. It's just a, basically a Ponzi scheme. You're just in this in the, content mill, this jungle of the contemporary that you can't, like even orient yourself in and then you go to look for something old and important and good and it's nothing is there. Like <laughs> they've nothing better, old. It's a memory hole. I mean if you yeah like well yeah YouTube is a uh, uh, is better. YouTube is amazing. YouTube's fascinating. I mean you it's like you can learn anything any skill basically if you wanted to from YouTube. What can you learn from Netflix? Well that's the thing too right. Exactly. Nothing. I don't know. I really... Um, YouTube doesn't lose money. That's the other thing. YouTube makes money. Netflix right. loses an unsa- I mean, this is the other thing. Like, all of the things we have to interact with in our lives that f- are failing, the failing models, they lose money, they're bad, no one yeah. really likes them, but they just, like, self-propelled. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I really related to the character in Fleabag. Oh, my God. <laughs> Why? She spoke to Why? you. <laughs> are you a Fleabag hater? No. Oh, no. I think it's fine, but I'm not like a huge fan. I was like, yeah, whatever. I just, I like watch everything and I'm kind mm, of like, yeah. it like washes over me in a way. Fleabag was a, I'm talking about like contemporary kind of dystopian fiction though. Fleabag really discouraged me because I, I was just surprised that there was that much like blatantly sociopathic internal dialogues happening across people. In the oh, that, that many world. people were like, she's me. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was pretty fucked up. I, Cause I remember watching it and it was kind of before, you know, the second season. Mm. Cause I think when the second season came out, like everyone, that's when it was like trending and everyone's like, this is me. And I was, yeah. Like, I was like, Fuck. Yeah. When I watched it, I was like, this is definitely not me. Like, <laughs> so, not me (laughs) but it's like smart you know whatever yeah yeah i actually see i think comedy is like where it's at right now yeah i I go to the comedy shows and they're so subversive and and niche like stand-up comedy yeah like if you actually go to the place to yeah 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 because i mean and then those comedians like get some sort of youtube deal and like become completely boring but if you go to a stand-up comedy show yeah you can see like really fun one thing I've noticed is that there there are no comedy movies anymore. Like when, the last one was like the Hangover series. That was like I think that's ten years ago. Or, Has wow. there been any no, popular um, comedy what's franchises? What's her face? The female comic Amy Schumer. Or what like movie Girls Trip, was, like that kind of this shit. kind of thing. It's okay, Girls Trip is the clo- Girls Trip. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Girls Trip was the closest. It's, uh, there should have been some stoner comedies at least. That's safe, right? Not like not long jokes are totally. No, but not. Like, <laughs> no, it's triggering. It's triggering <laughs> no, somehow. Think about it, like no like cultural. Not like something about mar- these kind of like things that were actually somehow no one is laughing at the same thing in the same way. Right. Like right. That's kind of what. Although I'm you right. could do like one of those like uh, scary movie type parodies. Well, would that, be great. that doesn't exist with anymore like, either. Though, I, right? But that would be really good with like uh, Midsummer and Hereditary. <laughs> like if you did a scary, if you did a scary movie all about A twenty four releases, it would be like oh, really, wow. really good. Or I just think. like a. It would be funny if they did a superhero movie and they just just got like sued by as many different. Studios oh, like a Marvel. Marvel. Just Marvel. It would just yeah, be like any other. It definitely be a scary Marvel, Marvel. Marvel. Mm. <laughs> series. Yeah. That's like, so, like the only thing worse than more superhero movies would just be like. Parodies of superhero movies. Parodies of superhero, <laughs> of superhero movies. Yeah. In 3D. Mm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm. Inter- did, did, but 
did, did you have any backlash to any of this stuff that you wrote? No, I don't know why, though. I'm, like, <laughs> waiting for it. Like, I, I mean, the one that I wrote for M Plus One that's, like, clearly sort of taken from real life, but a lot of things have been changed a lot. So maybe they're unrecognizable to those people. I think, like, everyone who's talked to me about that, everyone reads it in a totally different way. Mm-hmm. Which is like the author's ultimate goal, you know. Yeah, like sure. I've done, sure. I've achieved it. Because everybody was like, "Wow, somebody finally talked about you know the Me Too movement in the way that I see it, which is like that cancel culture is out of control, or that cancel culture is given a bad rap, or you know, like all these people kind of have this different version of it in their minds because they relate to it in different ways. I guess the Rashomon of yeah, takes. hopefully. I mean, I hope that the whole book is read that way. Because I'm definitely not seeking scandal with it. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just surprised, you know, that no one's been like, "Hey, why did you write that?" Well, unless you have specific people who want to find something to cancel you for, there's not that many people who are interested in doing but that I, kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, well, I don't think I'm like big enough to be canceled anyway. It's like, what, what would Nano happen? You I mean, but yeah, I was, I'm just surprised that I haven't like personally offended anyone. Right. That's okay, the main. Sure, I was yeah. like, yeah. not of being canceled just like the actual kind of like Period. private conversation <laughs> I'm sure there's some letters in your book who are going to be D or a G or a L or a yeah all those what people don't read it's fine <laughs> <laughs> but I think what's interesting about your book is like you speak from I mean you are a reliable witness to what's going on like it's not like accusing anybody yeah well and it's also I think I'm I'm more careful now I have to do this for a living, so I'm definitely more careful in my writing, and I probably resort to a sort of like, and by the way, this is my own personal experience, so don't take it to mean like yeah. that I'm kind of trying to like give a lecture about this topic. Or in my mind, it's what's effective when I'm reading, mm. because I feel allergic to writing that is a little bit too sermony now. Mm. Like any type of manifesto now, you read now, it's like... That was from the 90s. Yeah, you know, that yeah. was like that stopped in the 90s, that style yeah. of writing. Because True. The Unabomber's Manifesto was the last good manifesto. <laughs> <laughs> the last good one. But yeah, it's like it doesn't age well. So you think satire ages. You were saying that earlier. that like Satire, satire ages. ages well. Yeah, that's interesting because you would think that it wouldn't because it is, of course, like so specific. No, but it's like it, it evades every type of criticism you could give writing, right, I think. right. I mean, it's personally, yeah, it appeals to me for sure. It always has. It, it really makes its context clear, so it brings its context with it. Yeah, and of course, like criticism without some humor or the, like levity is like just not very effective for me, and I think for most people. New York is always collapsing. I mean, that is the state of New York: is to experience it in kind of a perpetual collapse, a perpetual like oh, it had been better, but like, no, it hadn't. I mean, the greatest times were times where like everybody was a junkie and no one had heat. Like I, so I left New York in 2014 and I feel like when I go back there, I'm stepping onto Mars. I have to have an AR update to make sure I'm in the right place. But what's your, what's sort of your fantasy of the collapsed New York? What do the surfaces of that look like? Um, well, I mean, I guess the way New York looks does feel a little bit foreign to like my version of it when I first moved there. And that is largely in part to fashion because that's what I pay attention <laughs> to. I'm learning that a lot of people I know in 2011, there was this big 
like all of us that became friends all moved there at the same time and we didn't know it about each other. We were all part of a scene. Like, I think we'd call it in retrospect, like the disc magazine scene, but it didn't feel that way at the time that that was like the only thing going on. And it does feel like there's a new scene that has taken over. What is it? Yeah, what is it? (laughs) No, because, but I think about, I just think about like, like disc magazine and ASAP Rocky, right? Ghetto Gothic kind of ex- right. yeah. tied in with that. Yeah, too. I moved there like right when Ghetto Gothic was kind of ending, I guess, or like becoming more commercial. Right. Mm. But it's like those are, I think, I don't know, two significant parts of the recent cultural history. But what now is being established that's. There's definitely like a type of younger person that. I mean, I have to talk about it in terms of fashion. It's like the only way I know how. But, you know, it's like they dress almost like in the complete opposition to any of that like 90s rave cyber culture. It's like Victorian, you know, or like jester costume. Like, yeah, like prairie (laughs) stuff. You know, it's like all these sort of, I mean, it's definitely affected popular culture so far there's now a lot of movies about like the 70s and cults and new cults and like people wearing prairie dresses and like mid um, old town road you know you're getting old when you can't connect the dots between cowboys prairie dresses and cults (laughs) well because cults i think a lot of like the cults that we are aware of all wore like a long dress they were hippies yeah (laughs) but they all wore like one thing you know what i mean it looks very like sort of um like dress like women dressing in corsets right now is huge and that's counter to this idea of new feminism but it's maybe in reaction to it and so like the prairie dress thing feels the same or like a cult dress wasn't or like a big robe prairie or something core, like what was it? prairie core or yeah was what's bon- her name bonnet, bonnet core yeah bonnet. <laughs> i mean i was asked to write about that yeah that's like right. in the book too i mean it's been happening but i think now it's very mainstream are there right. fainting rooms coming back i hope so <laughs> i faint room. a lot i w- i want a fainting room <laughs> I remember after Electro Clash, though, when APC got really big, it was the counter to that. And everyone was wearing nicely tailored, like, French collars and, yeah. Spring cords. Spring cords. And you could put them in the washing machine, though. You could wash your shoes, but not your jeans in that time. You had to put your jeans in the freezer. Yeah, yeah, you had to put them in the freezer, yeah. (laughs) Along with all your bed bug sheets. Right. But back to to these um, these prairie teens that you're from. Prairie teens, yeah. No, 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 I'm not trying to... Are they producing producing media? Is there a magazine? Is there something besides fashion signaling? Are they on Tinder? No, I'm... No. Song Old Town Road. It's the only music. The Perry, the whole, did, the whole Old Town Road thing. That's like slightly separate from the Perry. No, thing. I'm, I mean, sure. I think I'm sure it's separate. I don't think it is. It could be Coval, but it's a different. Like it's not like a festy circuit. It's I mean, it? or no. I don't know. I think yeah. it's like uh, like okay, like Marion Messers a day is like huge. Yeah. In New York. Yeah. And like that to me feels very, very different from like anything that was going totally. on when I first moved there. Even though I, I know her, like I've known her the whole time, but she was kind of like, I was like, oh, that's like for a different type of person. Um, it's very different. For, right. And so like, I've always been sort of aware yeah. of her style and like appreciated it for this other group of people that would be interested in it. And now I feel like it's becoming very like the people that were once going to the same parties as me 
if if I still went to those parties, yeah, yeah, <laughs> then yeah, I would yeah, see yeah. them wearing Miriam Nasir's a day or like a Batshiva dress. Oh, wow. I think it's such a specific example. I don't mean to like put her on blast like that because it's it's just like one I know, but it's like a, a type of dressing that's very feminine and very like traditional kind well, of shape. What's this name you're saying? Her name is Mariam Nasir Zadeh. <laughs> oh, and she's the Prairie Corps. I mean, more I feel like in Prairie no, Corps, no, no. Like, it's more like like really nicely crafted garments, like specialty pieces uh, with like nice materials. Yeah, it's like material that you don't want to mess up. I mean, I guess it's really decadent to mess it up. But. So it's for like the virginal, straight edge, successful Gen Zer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Not the like 28th Street, I bought this for five. Because I mean, that was the great thing about that whole go to 28th Street and you just buy a bunch of stuff. And it oh, didn't totally. make a difference if you left all of it at the club. Yeah. I mean, and there's always like that kind of pendulum in fashion, yeah. at least. That's like, I, I think right now it's kind of reaching the hilt of like conservative <laughs> dressing. And then it's going to go back to sort of clubbier or like, I don't know what, like gothier. I mean, I think that it's almost like, ending but uh influence of russian culture and like that russian well like yeah. the yeah like the kind of like fuck you like i'm yeah. gonna dress like a russian like Gosha. gabber kind yeah, of kid right. because like russia is scary to us right. and like dressing like a scary thing is always popular <laughs> <laughs> so now like God Finally, is scary now, now, like super religious or like yeah. culty things are popular because they're scary to us because we're scared of becoming like more vulnerable to cults. I mean, yeah. we definitely are more vulnerable to that type of thing. We have a cult leader in the States. I mean, right. <laughs> yes. in the sense. I yeah. mean, Josh, I think Cinderella would be like, it's a one-to-one, it's trad culture and there's trad dressing and there's trad yeah. memes. And that is, of course, where, I mean, Old Town Road, is capitalizing on that. I mean, all the meme, all the TikTok memes were like white people performing it. Right. And not, yeah. not Lil Nas X. And he was yeah. just really like very like clearly, you know, hit a nerve really perfectly. And I think that it must be kind of the same somehow, right. somehow. Related. Well, Telfar did it first, by the way. That's true. That's <laughs> that is so true. He, he did a find whole it. show of just right. cowboys and like country And the White music. Castle thing also is very much kind of, Oh yeah, yeah no, Somehow and then related. everybody did fast food after that. Yeah, no, sure, of course, yep. Right, that's true. But also, what was her name? I forget. In this, and she would always wear like like buttless chaps, oh. like maybe like Filipino or Latina. Yeah, or something. Um, what is her and, name? Um, too long ago to even be part of the trend, but I still see her as part of the same like style yeah. trajectory. Yeah, what she's like really sassy. Yeah, she's like, great. She has great style. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, maybe New York still has some. I remember at some point I wanted to start dressing like that that like that like preacher guy from Poltergeist 2 (laughs) you remember him? that'd be hot yeah that would be cool like you need a bolo right? Uh that's my old man when I'm old that's my look how do you be a skinny old guy though? because that's what I'm worried about a skinny old guy? yeah it seems really hard to like stay skinny when you're like old right oh but like skinny old men always look cool just as long as you're skinny you look cool if you're an old man I think you should smoke a lot of cigarettes I think I might be have to start smoking (laughs) (laughs) or just it'll make you look old that part you'll get ahead of the curve you can just look (laughs) old while you're still skinny yeah yeah (laughs) I get mm, that's that's hard though I've been working pretty hard to like make myself 
I've, I've been like uh, abusing my cells plenty. I don't think I can do, <laughs> do anything more to make myself look old now. But anyways, uh, I just want to make sure I'm a, diet. That makes you look old? I thought well, it makes you live forever. Well, both. It makes Wait, you so live forever and you look old while you're living forever. <laughs> and you're skinny. Wait. Win, win, win. Calorie restriction makes you look old? Kind of, yeah, you're going to be all like, a little bit haggard and in a superficial way makes you look aged. I don't know. I don't know. Steve, I don't know anyone who's Steve been Buscemi's looked he's like, amazing. old forever, though. Yeah, but he's also great forever. Yeah. So maybe he's you're lucky. right, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> he was part of a cool New York. He was, yeah. Definitely. He also is the voice. Have you ever gone to the penitentiary in Philadelphia? The like big old, like, you know, Bentham type, like Panopticon? No. A, I highly recommend it as a day trip. Okay. And B, definitely get the audio guide because for some reason it's Steve Buscemi. No way. (laughs) No, for real. And then the place is run by a bunch of like kind of like radical lesbians who are like, we're going to show you what prison is about. What the? Yeah, it's amazing. And it's an old- It's not making sense. And they also have a really big Halloween. So like for like four Sundays in October, you can go and get like, they have like a baby one for children or you can get like scared out of your mind. (laughs) <laughs> and it's like all in the dark <laughs> I really want to do that yeah, yeah I highly recommend it okay. and then it's not you know it's not expensive lesbian jail tour narrated by Steve Buscemi and there's also an option for babies I mean on normal days it's like family friendly sounds, sounds normal yeah <laughs> you can really walk around everywhere it's great <laughs> one thing I do think though is out of all like the, the kind of because there is like this legacy of New York diary of like wild lifestyles but i like that your book it, it has it has like enough coke to be like whoa new york's crazy everyone's doing coke all the time like, <laughs> like, and like celebs and coke like but like it's not like it's it doesn't feel like gratuitous yeah or? it doesn't feel like you're like hyperbolizing the depravity at all it's nor does it hinge the, on that nor does it nor right. does it like i mean it no, like no, it's, it's not like, even like there's so much new york fiction that's written like that's just like kind of like Look at how crazy everything is. And then, but it actually talks a lot about the interpersonal politics of it. And almost like, which almost become, they seem like, like exhausting and mundane and persistent. I feel like that's like some part (laughs) of New York. Which is crazy in a way. But I feel like that part's neglected in a lot of... And also of, the economies um, of it, right? right. Yeah, and I really the, appreciate all that. All the microeconomies. The microeconomies, like, I think this is yeah. what you were trying to say in the beginning about guest list versus yes, press list. Yes, exactly. It's like, like all these, the negotiation to. of all these little values that all kind of count in this kind of crabs in a bucket, selfish but <laughs> glamorous orgy of pettiness. Oh, Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> you can you, you blurb my next one. <laughs> but it's true. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, when you shift from like, you know, when you're working at a magazine and then you're not, or you're at a gallery or you're not, or like you're, you're mid-career artist or whatever it is. But I, of course, have this like other economy in my mind that's constantly running whether I want to or not. You can think of like a recent instance where I went to a friend's opening, but I wasn't invited to the dinner. And I was like, that I accept that. A lot. Yeah. yeah. That's like a really, really common thing that you have to learn 
like the hard way every time. Right. And, and it's like, <laughs> it's like and you know, and it's such like a micro economy and it's such a weird thing. So you're like, okay, I have a friend from out of town. We have an opening. I want to hang out with my friend. I want to support what they're doing. I am like in some capacity in the art world, all the people in this room are my friends, mm-hmm. but I will not go to a dinner if I'm not invited. A, because somebody made this calculation before and made a decision and I'm not going to expend the energy to fight it. Uh-huh. I'll meet up with them later. But two, if it wasn't, mistake and like all my friends are going then like how do you right and so you're thinking of this like the stupid like background radiation of like trying to make the calculation and I mean you know you're thinking about this constantly with all sorts of relationships right and this goes outside of just the culture sector but it's particularly like pronounced in the culture sector, I think, yeah. because like there is this form of I me. Mean, no one gets paid anything working for a magazine. It's like barely enough to cover your rent, and there's this idea that you're given access to something, or you're pay, they're paying it for you're paying it forward in some way, and right. you know, in some way, this is going to come back. And I just think about these economies, and it's something that your book distills so well. Like Thank you. you put them there's somehow there they there is that nuance in all the exchanges well I mean I guess it's like something that if you're not obsessed with I don't understand why you're living in New York like it right, like why right, you're right, not right. obsessed with value and and quantifying it like the idea that I can yeah like work at a magazine make very little money and then have to pretend that I make a lot of money in order to kind of fit in with the people that generally work at magazines, especially fashion magazines, because they come from money or, you know, they somehow, they married into money, something like this. So they they wear the fashion that we're actually writing about, which is completely like fantasy world for yeah. me. Like also not interesting to me. Like I yeah. don't want to buy something for $3,000, but these like to interact with the people that do, is is already this strange value judgment that you have to make where you're like, I'm assigning value to this product and then kind of criticizing the people <laughs> <Right>. that end <laughs> up like taking that value into like their own. Seriously. Yeah, yeah. they're taking it seriously. And then there's like, that's just one example because there's the entire party, like the partyscape of New York is so weird still to me yeah. where I'm like, I don't know why I was invited to this one and not this one. I don't know why I was invited to, I was not invited to the dinner I or I was. Like, totally. There's no way for me to ever totally understand my own value in that world. And it's like, and then I think when Instagram started, it was like another form of seeing kind of like the way people kind of uh, describe their own value yep. in this way of like, not just numerically, but you know how much of their life they show you exactly, and how much you can see that they were invited. And not only were they invited to the thing, but they got to go and bring friends. And then they, the, all those friends went to like the next art fair or like a huge vacation together. And so you're like constantly sort of seeing like, well, okay, like is is this some secret money or is it like? a secret invitation or are these people just really good at looking like they get (laughs) the things that I'm after and you have to constantly negotiate that, you know? And then at the same time, I'm like constantly saying like, I wonder what people think of me because I was in Mallorca last weekend. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, in Berlin now just kind of like hanging out and I like, you know, go to Paris twice a year for fashion, for work. And, 
I have a pretty fabulous life and I'm sure for the most part it it looks like I'm one of those people that kind of didn't have to worry about money ever but meanwhile as a writer I mean I've, I'm just yeah, guessing had, yeah. yeah like absolutely I mean I like I never thought of myself as not having money when I was a kid because it was sort of like the zone I lived in was not rich in any way but you know bringing back friends and boyfriends and like new people in my life to the house that I grew up in like I think it's shocking I think most people are very shocked from seeing like the way I was brought up because it wasn't it was just very sort of creative class but a different, <laughs> different creative class at the time was you know suburban creative class no like much more um like downtown Tucson hippies with like zero like pocket money just kind of like living paycheck to paycheck but I never thought of it as being you know poor or lower class I was kind of just like lived in a shitty neighborhood so everybody looked like that you know but then when I was a teenager my family moved to a suburban area and then I saw kind of like yeah like what suburbia which is like a class above what I was at and looked like so I've seen like kind of the different versions of it I guess but New York is a whole other level you know and plus everybody's pretending and because nobody sees where anyone lives in New York like it's yeah, you only yeah. go back home with somebody unless you're like like actually the roommate or you're like dating them or sleeping with them or something yeah, so you yeah. like and never and that's always shocking yeah I'm shocked no matter what whenever I see anybody's home because if it's nice, it's shocking. If it's small, yeah, it's totally, you know, it's like totally. there's never like, oh, of course you live here. Like it's <laughs> yeah, right. always a surprise. Right, 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 right. And so people can just you can always be this masked figure. Like anywhere you go, you just are whoever you present yourself as. Yeah. And that's that's it. There's no other like corroborating evidence. Right. Yeah. Whatever you bring with your body, is it? Although there is an anxiety to that, I feel like. I mean, I kind of like binge read like 50 or 100 pages of your book. And you do negotiate with that a, a bit of just like you have power from the magazine, but some of these people are extraordinarily wealthy. And to them, you still have some sort of power. But when it comes down to it, you actually don't have the same level of security freedom, flexibility, financial resources, they do. And I always feel like that's like a complicated thing to navigate sometimes. Well, it's like you said, it's like still, it's still cool to be poor there some, oh. in some ways, right? Because it's mean, like if you can make it and you're quote, quote, poor, then it's also like, well, you must have some other skills or something. Or, yeah, I don't know. And actually, I don't even know if it's true that it's cool to be poor in New York yeah, for I, anyone. I but, think you just can like work like weasel you can you can be in those spaces if you're poor in LA there's almost like a dis there's like a physical barrier to like even like poor people getting to these places like the solo house there it's you, you can know? only enter through the parking garage and there's only right. LA parking for instance <laughs> in wow. LA. I remember going there like, yeah whatever randomly and then like people were like coming there and they were apologizing for coming in the rental car like it was and this was like such a wow. bizarre like, insight yeah, I was just like, who could I mean? Because if you show up in your rental car, it's like you're faking your way into Soho House. But it was like a shitty rental because it was probably not as nice of a car as the real car or something. It was like a, or I don't oh know what I don't gosh, know. Gosh, it's don't know, so. But, it was just but like, also, like, who the fuck cares about Soho House? Oh my god. Yeah. Well, apparently, there's still like a market for that type of. It establishment. seems so. I can't even. It seems yeah. so like 
early 2000s or something. Yeah, it does. I mean, one thing I noticed is how, like, kind of trendy sex work has become in New York. But it's been sexy, like, in and out for quite, I mean, since, I don't know. It seems like almost, like... The 70s. Yeah, I, I guess, but... There's no, just something I, about the, well, there's pumps like in the in the audience like where like every hipster girl like would like right. pole dance. Yeah, but now I I I think you're right. No, I mean I think yeah. it's definitely more normalized. And, and I mean maybe it's, it's in New York. I think that's just like it's like more high end or For, no, well, just on some no, weird like, like more hipster just like, and internet. Based level also just like the expansion of the definition of sex work to like cam sell, girls. yeah or selling feet pics is sex work yeah. oh, so of well, course yeah, it's that's in true. general way more normalized that's true right more need for it I guess I don't know yeah it's kind yeah. of there's like a parallel like sex work becoming more normalized but also the, your normal feed of images becoming more sexualized right. so it's like it must sort of overlap in too many ways for it to be that lucrative I mean, I assume, but I mean, New York has like the, it has been gotten harder to live there since you moved there, right? Like, not for me, I guess. It's yeah. like yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like I only love New York more and more. Actually, I think I feel more comfortable there. I think it's like it's just the age I am, but like there, there are. I think also kind of it's like there's a wave of sort of um, I don't know if this is accurate but cowboys it, and prairie girls yeah <laughs> <laughs> no just like a more like it's less elitist in certain ways because the style the fashion trend the the more like acceptable way to behave is a lot more politically correct ah you know so so there's a big like kind of like hippie-ish like feeling going on where everybody's a little bit friendlier and more accepting of each other's, you know, whatever right. it is, identity politics. And, and that to me feels like, even though it comes with all this like annoying kind of conversation, it's like a lot more comfortable too, hmm. to feel like you don't have to live up to a certain standard in so and many like that's ways. Ex- that's extended to class too, you think there too. Like I think there's still definitely like this idea that you have to hang out at certain places and like right. make enough money to hang out there. But I think there's also this like more accepting lifestyle, I guess. But yeah, like young people are really sweet most of the time when you meet them (laughs) you know like they're like nice people and they you know sometimes I'm like I can't believe what your ideas are that are like coming out of your mouth because they're so foreign to me but for the most part they're very understanding I guess I want to maybe just reframe the what I was saying though and maybe it doesn't apply to you but like do you feel like you could like settle down and have a family in New York I don't not me no but yeah, um, a lot of people do. I know a lot of people that have kids. Like in the creative industry yes. and there. Cool. It, it's possible. It's really, really difficult, I'm sure. Yeah. But it, it's always been difficult. It's not a city set up for that at all. Right. It never has been, I guess. Yeah. But I've also, it's like, I feel like now I'm just speaking for New York and I, I've still <laughs> never felt like a total New Yorker. I'm just like a person that lives there and I live in Brooklyn. It's not the same as like the full Manhattan experience, you know? But I think it's the same thing as being like an editor of a magazine too. It's like when you're too sold on the idea that you're the ultimate, you know, editor or you're like the ultimate New Yorker, you're not. 
Right. Like yeah. part of the identity of being a New Yorker is to also like, am I really a New Yorker? Like, yeah. You know, and you're supposed like, to kind of hate it. Yeah. It's part of the whole shtick. Yeah. I feel like every time we like, we talk about New York and ask people as if it's like gossip about an old crazy friend we That's used true. to know. <laughs> yeah, like how are That's they true. doing? Yeah. Are you sure they're okay? Exactly. Yeah. It's, always, That's true. it's always like that. They're like um, a really bad guy. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, but yeah, so... But are people still like at least on St. Mark's like punching cop cars on Angel Dust and stuff like that? Like, yeah. Okay, yeah. good. I think so. So like this is like We talked to a young, we talked to a 17-year-old kid, a friend who was here and he was like, no one we were talking to him about like oh, he like, said no one does graffiti anymore. No one anymore. writes graffiti anymore. Because you don't need graffiti to be all like, city. Famous. <laughs> yeah, like the better way to be famous is just do it on Instagram. So he said like kids aren't writing graffiti. <laughs> Like anymore, yeah. so causes the cause, that was kind of causes the last causes the last. Oh god! Yeah, and did we? I don't. Did we talk about the magazine industry in general? Magazines were really important to New York, but they were like pretty important to anyone who was at least a teenager in the nineties, two thousands, and you know the change happened maybe after. 2010, 20, 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12, whatever. As we see with some brands like, say, O32C, they're pivoting more to streetwear or like the right. idea of the magazine is taking this different form. I just wonder if you see something that's taking the place of the magazine. Maybe it is actually like a streetwear brand that has a lot of traction, something that holds a community together through like a form hmm. of signaling. I, I wonder about that too. I've been like definitely stumped by that because I think. There's nothing so far that's replaced the the cachet of a periodical intelligence. Um, yeah. You know, there's like, you can say you read books, but that's kind of like nerdy. Like, you know, it's like you can carry a book around. And look like, <laughs> right. like I had this joke with my friends that like you should, like every Tinder picture you have has like you reading a book, but like you're on the last page of it because it's like you've read the entire thing. <laughs> it's like, like reading books is like really kind of like out of control like galaxy brain now but it's like magazines were always this thing where you're like you're cool and also like you get it you read yeah and I don't think there's anything that's like replaced that specific signal yet right right so yeah when like fashion brands try to co-opt a magazine which I think is so funny now like yeah like you can kind of like wear a um like product that says that you know about a magazine. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like that's saying that you do read something offline basically, even <laughs> though it's probably not offline when you read it. That's right. You know, but it's like this kind of like I'm interested in like the old way of seeing things or like the it's I guess it's sort of the same as like signaling that you've read Freud or something. It's like this <laughs> other this kind of like dying form, but it's it's had its cachet or the, it's had a, a value in the past that will always be. And even I think like fashion photography. Yeah. You know, like sh like wearing like a Supreme shirt that has like an old image like Larry Clark image or something. Right. Yeah. Like you kind of have this like conversation with the world about how you're knowledgeable of like an, an a form that has more meaning yeah. than just that image. So I think that there must always be a place for that specific 
type of material. I just don't know if it will, I mean, print magazines are becoming these sort of like weird, like coffee table books now instead of like what they used to be. So I I guess they're just that now. I I don't know. I mean, the New Yorker still gets printed every week. Right. (laughs) So in New York, I guess there's there's still bad subway reception. So you still would like actually. Exactly. Still great subway reception. That's like the only time. (laughs) Yeah. The only time you see New Yorkers is on the subway. Is Fed still being printed? What's Fed? Fed's. It's like this like crime magazine from Harlem. You can buy it above 14th Street. In the oh, wow. Usually. <laughs> no, that was I don't my know. favorite. I would always buy there. You can, but it's a magazine made by like people who were like out of prison. Well, they just, or? it's always like interviews with like famous drug dealers from jail. And That's then cool. They have like pictures in the back of like girls in like bikinis because like that's what's allowed in jail. They like, because a lot of the readers are also in jail. But Feds was wow. my favorite New York magazine, but I hope it's still it's being a good printed. Network. They never so went true. digital at all. So that's why <laughs> I wonder, it's still like the subway newsstand economy for, for Feds. So. But I feel like in Berlin, there's a big economy of like small, small merch. And it's like everybody's record label slash magazine slash fashion brand is selling t-shirts to each other and mm-hmm. everyone's just like trading trading t-shirts selling t-shirts and like signaling and just like, <laughs> yeah you like every single thing i own is like basically a piece of merch from a friend right yeah. or like some piece of nice fashion that got handed down to me off of a shoot yeah like three times and that's yeah. it <laughs> and that's that's that seems to be but like I, I really like that kind of like fashion and just economy because it's, it's also the things sweet. are so they're specifically local too you know yeah yeah, so it's kind of nice, like these little incestuous cottage industry of merch and niche labels of friends wearing friends. Yeah. Things. And then your friend buys your thing and then. Yeah, all, amplify each the other. Money gets as just just passed says. around, you know? On that tip, like, is there anybody that you like want to like shout out or anything that you've, anybody whose project you think is um, particularly special? Or? I think people have made magazines recently yeah. that I liked maybe. Yeah. I can't think of one now. And like comedians. Like yeah, I comedians. Said. But also podcasters. I mean yeah. that might be like kind of the replacement for magazines because you can listen to a podcast while you're doing anything else. Yeah. Right. And language is used in a way kind of similar to magazines where right. it's like more colloquial it's clo- yeah. and it's like faster and it speaks about a local network. I feel like the reason I got back into listening to podcasts was because I kept thinking, I kept having these conversations with my friends about feeling nostalgic for long form articles that felt gossipy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Even yeah. because, you know, I'm sure you know, like interviewing a celebrity is not the same as it used to be. Yeah. You can't right. really like get around their publicist anymore. So there's right. no like really good interviews with celebrities, there's no good like nothing articles about somebody's life. And then if you do one, like Patrick Sandberg's Young Thug article, all of a sudden you get in like big trouble. I know, yeah. Right? He always gets so canceled good, yeah. or like almost canceled for something that I'm like, I did not see that one coming at all. And I feel like pretty sensitive to that type of thing. But yeah, like I think, well, and also Patrick's podcast is great because he's totally uncensored now. It's called Not Really. Yeah, I could, okay, that's my shout out. Yeah. <laughs> Um, really listen to not really. No, yeah. Yeah. Like I, I, I have these conversations about um, the glory days of like Vanity Fair articles, which like at the time, I don't think it was my favorite thing to read, you know, but just looking back, it feels 
like so rich with details and they're the type of details that like you see it in like that one video of Alexis Nyers calling out Nancy Jo Sales. Nancy Jo Sales wrote The Bling Ring, which was an article, and then it became a book and then it became a movie. But the article happened right as the reality show of Alexis Nyers and her family <laughs> was coming out. And on the reality show, Alexis Nyers says, I can't believe she wrote this article about me saying that I went to court wearing six inch uh, Louboutin heels when they were clearly four inch brown okay. BB <laughs> shoes. And like she says it over and over again because her mom keeps interrupting her and when she's trying to leave a voicemail. So it's like this very like iconic moment of, of a celeb, like a pseudo celebrity kind of calling out a really respected journalist and her getting like the upper hand eventually because Alexis Nyers is now a much more popular figure than Nancy Jo Sales ever will be. <laughs> and I've even seen on Twitter like huge arguments with like Gen Z people trying to like get behind the fact that like Nancy Jo Sales was in the wrong. You know, and like she's still in the wrong and, and she's still doing it. And she's this horrible like witch that's oh just God. calling like that's just getting things wrong and using like people to to elevate her own career. And it's like she's like one of the best profile writers that we've yeah. ever had. Yeah, I think yeah. she's like a genius and like maybe she gets a little preachy sometimes. But to say that she kind of like ruined this person's life by writing an article about her, you wouldn't have had that problem totally. in the like 80s and in the days, in the glory days of magazine <laughs> totally. accounts. Totally. Tina Brown say. era. Right. So it's like it's. But there it's, was that really good Gwyneth Paltrow profile. In that New York one Times. was amazing was by so Taffy Brodekesser actor. Yes, I think. so it was yeah. really good. Yeah. yeah, and I was actually talking to somebody about that article recently, and they were like defending Gwyneth in a weird way, what? saying like, "Well, this this article was so snarky and unnecessarily," and it's like, but it wasn't it's, actually. It's not, and it's fun to read that kind of thing. It is, but also, I mean, they make Gwyneth look like an amazing businesswoman, and that's obviously what she wanted to signal. Right. Like, that's how she comes off in that article. I mean, she sounds also like an OCD freak in some ways. Yeah. But like that obviously wasn't important for her to hide to her interviewer. Right. She let that be present, but she also came off as like a really fierce businesswoman. Well, so, here's the thing: the good writing versus impossible to be a good writer today kind of yeah. uh, conundrum that we have is like that article if it was published when only print media was existing would make Gwyneth Paltrow really happy and right. I don't know if it did or not but it, that would be the end of her train of thought yeah and now she's probably seeing the fallout of it and seeing people remediate certain sections of it, right. talk about it, use it as evidence, and now freaking out about it. Maybe. Yeah, now she thinks that that writer wronged her, right? And it was it was not in her control as much as it should have been, and so even more control comes from that. Like there's just less and less control that writers have over their own. Articles when writers are just supposed to be publicists, basically, as exactly. opposed to actually right. like objective observers, like right. the public eye. But I think it works in every form of writing, yeah. not just celebrity profiles. You just have to become so much more careful about every single thing you say that you know it just ends up being not as fun to gossip. And right. so we've lost that. We've basically lost gossip writing, but we can still listen to podcasts, right? Because 
you know, while, while you're talking, you aren't thinking as hard about like how it will be taken. And as you're listening, you're also not thinking as hard about like exactly what's being said. It's right. like, cause again, it's not remediated in the same way. Right. And I'm sure that will kind of dissipate eventually, yeah. but I think it's like, there's a little bit of a heyday right now happening. Thanks for coming on our podcast to gossip with us. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me. I just love the idea of goop stands. <laughs> oh, or man. Alexis Nyers stands. Yeah, yeah she's guess. like Why? the person who robbed celebrities and got famous for it. Yeah. Well, that's of course a very sympathetic crime these days. Increasingly, sh- that was sort of setting a trend so. of like big yeah. pre-guillotine memes and stuff. Like, I think at this point, it's like okay. For instance, I, this Kylie Jenner posted this shot of like her clo- of her closet oh, with yeah. all the different handbags, and it looks like a particularly bad shop like on Canal Street or something. Yeah, like a bunch it, looks of boot- so it looks like bootleg things. But all of the comments, literally all of them are like increase the top marginal tax rate to 100% or kill the rich <laughs> or eat the rich. And I feel like Amazing. even eight years ago there would have been people that would be defending her and be like, you know, she worked hard for this and she deserved those, you know, (laughs) there definitely would have been those people and they just like don't actually exist anymore, at least not in Twitter or not Uh, in my bubble. They exist in the democratic debate somehow. (laughs) (laughs) Still people that are like, it's unethical to tax the rich and it's like, what? no one should have a billion dollars. Yeah. Yeah. No one should have a Birkin bag. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, No, I mean, uh, I'm fine with that. (laughs) (laughs) That's a positive that's a positive note to end on, too. No one to have a broken bag. Yeah. <laughs> I just said more, more people are talking about guillotines, you know? I hope so, yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Maybe we should wrap it up now, yeah. and then we can ask sure. you to read a little bit, and so oh, we yeah. totally exhaust you. Do okay. you have the energy? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll try. Um, I gotta be going. Okay, but should we just say, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you um, for having tell me. Tell New York I said, what's up? He remembers <laughs> me. Hope he's doing all right. <laughs> it's a she. Hope she's doing okay. She seems they. like she's in a... They. 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 Yeah. All right. (laughs) Um, I'm Natasha Stagg, and I'm reading a passage from my book called Sleeveless Fashion Image Media New York 2011 to 2019. And this is one part of a story that has a sort of diaristic structure. November 18th, 2017. I went with C to the Women's Entrepreneurship Day fundraising pre-dinner. In the lobby, we told a woman with an iPad who we were, and another girl took us to a private elevator whose operator knew what floor to take us to. When the doors opened, another attendant took our coats and gave us tickets. A short hallway opened to an apartment painted in bright colors and hung with paintings and artifacts of world travels. Two Bichons wearing hot pink fleece vests and diamante-studded collars clinked around a tiered table full of champagne bottles. A man was filling flutes and placing them on a tray held by another man. Another man was ladling a creamy pink punch into short goblets and handing them to women wearing Chanel suits and costume jewelry. The publicist who had invited us introduced us to the owner of the apartment a woman whose face was asymmetrical with botched plastic surgeries. She was wearing a pink fleece vest, too, and furry pink slippers. Many of the attendees looked to be mothers in pearls with their daughters who wore Tiffany charm bracelets or Cartier bangles. The publicists 
and the wait staff were the only men in the room until a man walked in with his younger wife. Her Hervé Leger dress squeezed her upper back, giving it a long crease. It took the man only a few minutes to find a reason to talk to a famous model who was sipping a clear cocktail near the window. The trophy wife stood patiently to the side. The owner of the apartment, now holding a dog under each arm, posed in front of a small step-and-repeat that blocked a doorway. Someone handed her a microphone and took one of the dogs from her so she could hold it. She talked for a few minutes about her home, her dogs, and her career as a film producer. The founder of Women's Entrepreneurship Day, a leading activist, mentioned how close she was to each of the dogs, how much character they had, and how her own dog loved them like sisters. What followed was hard to follow. It was a winding speech about activism. First animal rights activism, and then something vague about underprivileged women, a half-told anecdote about a stalker, something about writing several books and breaking several Guinness World Records, and then a story that started with, no one told me that Honduras isn't a vacation spot. If it wasn't for her trip to Honduras, which I do not recommend, by the way, it's the most dangerous place in the world. Did you guys know that? I didn't, she said. She would have never met so many women in need of business training, though. And that was the goal of the fundraiser the following night, to which everyone was required to bring their checkbooks. November 19th, 2017. At some point on Sunday in bed, I googled the owner of the apartment. Her one film credit was a short she had written, directed, produced, and voiced. It starred her two dogs. Next, I googled the speaker. Her books were mostly about her dogs, and her Guinness World Records were for dog with the most expensive wedding and dog photographed with the most celebrities. I texted C about it. If I see her on the street, I will throw something at her, she replied. <laughs> so great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to the New Models Podcast and thank you to Natasha Stagg for coming on the show. Natasha's book is out now and is available online at mitpress.mit.edu and all of your favorite local bookshops. We also want to give a big shout out to the New Models community who make the online and IRL space infinitely richer with their insane level of collective knowledge and wit. You are our hive mind Wikipedia you are a hive mind think piece. You are you are, you are our medium. Thank you. For, for more new models, check out our main site, newmodels.io. You can also join our Patreon at patreon.com slash newmodels, which gives you access to our Discord server and all new models podcasts, including Topsoil, our weekly talk core cast. Talk core is a I love that. This has been the new talk core. This has been the new models podcast. See you next time with more talk core. <laughs>